0: Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Continue our study of Jesus' teaching, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19. I'm going to begin with telling you a little story, though. I, I was um, traveling overseas one time with my uncle, and uh, as we were coming back to the United States, we missed a connection. It was not our fault, it was the airline's fault, so they put us up in a hotel room for the evening and they added on an extra day of travel to us so uh, after we spent the night we went into the airport and as we were walking up to the desk as and checked in the uh, airline attendant told us that we had been bumped up to business class okay, not first class I've never flown first class but business class which was really really nice it was really amazing I don't know if you've ever flown business class or first class first class was cool too um, I looked in soft first class, and, and check that out, but business class is very similar, big, wide, huge leather seats, and anytime you want to eat something, they will just come to you and bring you something to eat, something to drink, uh, you have your own little personal TV screen, flips up, stick in your own video, choose what video you want, it was, oh, it was awesome, I thought, I'm made for this, this is what I was born for, flying like this, now, uh, you may never have flown like that, but you can just uh, imagine, you know, as compared to coach, it's really nice. So imagine that you're walking up to the airline counter and they say to you, we want to bump you up from coach class into business class or first class. Would you turn it down? No, you wouldn't turn it down in case you wondered. You would not turn it down. You wouldn't turn it down. There's something in us that wants to upgrade, right? We, we want the best. And that's not sinful, that's not unnatural, Uh, it's not a part of our sin nature, it's part of our human nature. We want what is best, we long for what is best. The Sermon on the Mount, actually, Jesus is appealing to that within us, that we want the best out of life. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about blessings, The beatitude, blessed are those. He's saying, this is how to get the best out of life. The Sermon on the Mount is then, in that respect, uh, enlightened self-interest. You are self-interested. You will pursue what's best for yourself. Jesus is going to tell you how to do it and how to do it really well. And in that respect, we can even say God wants us to be rich. He just wants us to be rich in the right way and at the right time. He wants us to be rich in ways that last forever, ways that endure forever. And so that's what he's going to talk about in Sermon on the Mount. Not surprisingly, throughout Jesus' teachings, uh, he talks a lot about wealth and riches and money. A few weeks ago, we looked at the fact that in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about reward over and over and over and over again. It's an enormously significant theme in the Sermon on the Mount and in Jesus' teaching. How do you get rich at the right time and how do you stay rich forever? I want you to look at me in chapter 6 verse 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But, on the other hand, do store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus tells us that wealth is a window to the soul. The reason that Jesus spends so much time talking about wealth and talking about material resources is because our attitude toward our wealth is revealing about what we really love in life and what we really value in life. Let me give you a quote from a man named David McConaughey. He wrote a book called Money, the Acid Test. In it, he said, Money, most common of temporal things, involves uncommon and eternal consequences. Even though it may be done quite unconsciously, Money molds men in the process of getting it, saving it, spending it, and giving it. Either the person becomes master of the money, or the money becomes master of the person. Our Lord takes money, as essential as it is to our common life, and makes it a touchstone to test our lives and an instrument to mold mold us into the likeness of Himself. Now, notice two things that He says. First, it tests our lives. It reveals something about us. It reveals what we really love because we are material people living in a a material world. Money is one of the great indicators of what our heart really loves. What you set your affections on is what you worship. Worship means to ascribe worth to something. If you value it, you will pursue it. You will spend money on it. You will spend time on it. You will devote your affections to it. That is the definition of worship. But he also says in the process of that worship, it molds us. Depending upon our attitude toward money, it will mold us. It will transform us. If we become people who are fixed to the material world, we will become increasingly, increasingly, and increasingly material people. Not people who have their sights set on things that are eternal and last forever. It transforms us. Uh, That's our understanding of the nature of sanctification itself. How are we transformed into the image of Jesus Christ? Well, as we worship him, through all the variety of means that God gives us to worship Jesus Christ, that process of worshiping him transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a verse here from 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18. You're probably very familiar with this. It says, but we all with unveiled face, that is, we're believers in Jesus Christ, and because we're believers, the veil has been lifted. We can go... Immediately and boldly into the presence of God because Jesus has paid the penalty of our sins. We've received it freely. We didn't earn it. Christ earned it for us. So we go into the presence of God. Now we go in, in that sense, with unveiled face. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That is a brief definition of sanctification. As you worship God as he is, you behold him, you ascribe worth to him, you value God. You value his holiness, you value his power, you value his truthfulness, you value his faithfulness, and you set your heart on these things. These qualities that last forever, you set your heart on a relationship with God that is abiding and eternal, it transforms you into the same likeness. You become a spiritually-minded person, and it transforms your character. On the other hand, if you become fixated with the things of this earth, you will become smaller and smaller and smaller, because you're just living for life on this earth. And so Jesus says, you can't worship two things— You can't worship things that are eternal and worship things that are temporal because you can't be transformed into two different and opposing images. Look at verse 24 of chapter 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God who is eternal and wealth of the earth, which is temporal. And when he says serve there, it's the word for slavery. You can't be a slave. You can't be completely devoted to both. Both can't be primary in your life. Now, the reality of our lives is that we are distracted, right? We're pulled in multiple directions. You have family responsibilities, responsibilities to a spouse or to children. You have job responsibilities or school responsibilities. Uh, You have neighborhood responsibilities. You have all these other responsibilities. You're pulled multiple directions, right? That's not what he's saying. That's just the reality of life. But what he's saying is you can't worship more than one thing. One thing can't be first and primary and most important Two things cannot be. Only one can be. One must be foremost in your mind and your heart. And whatever that thing is, it will transform you into its image. Therefore, you cannot worship God and money, he says. Wealth is a window to the soul. It reveals what we really love. But wealth can also be a transforming thing. It can be powerful in our lives. So, Jesus will tell us, don't treasure up foolish treasures. Hey, treasure up treasures that last forever. Look with me in verse 19 again. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Uh, literally, Jesus says, don't treasure up treasures. Okay, don't treasure up, and the verb tense is telling us to stop doing this. It's assuming that The listeners of the Sermon on the Mount are all sitting around, and basically they're very earthly-oriented people, and they're in the process of treasuring up earthly treasures. And remember, in Jesus' day, there is no banking system. So if you want to accumulate wealth, what do you do? You have to store it yourself. You can't take it to a safe place. It might be a commodity that you want to barter with, or it might be that you change that commodity into the coinage of that day, but you've got to hide it someplace. You've got to store it. So you take it to a corner of your house and you dig a hole and maybe you cover it over with a table and some rocks and hopefully if the thief breaks in, he just can't find it. But the houses are small. 10, 15 minutes and the whole house is searched and the treasure is gone and all of your life savings, it's taken away. So if you have a little bit more wealth... Maybe you own property and you go out into that field and you dig a hole in the field and you bury it and you just hope you can remember where you buried it, right? And you hope that nobody watched you bury it because they might follow you there, dig it up and take it and all of your wealth is gone, just like that, in a moment. Or maybe you bury that commodity and you go back and you, under, and you find it having disintegrated. It is, it's, it's rotten or the moths have come in and they've eaten it. And it's gone. All that you saved for, all that you worked for has disintegrated. Such is the very nature of earthly wealth. It is not abiding by nature. It is not eternal by nature. I want you to turn with me to the book of Proverbs. Chapter 23. And we're going to look at Solomon's wisdom on this subject. Which apparently he didn't always apply. He taught it. He wrote it. He didn't necessarily always live it, right? So we pray for the wisdom of Solomon, but that we'd actually actualize it, right? Chapter 23 of Proverbs, he says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings, like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Like investing in the stock market market during certain periods of time. Turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes with me, chapter 5. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 13. More words from Solomon. He says, There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his own hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, Then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. If you're depressed, don't read Ecclesiastes, right? Oh, man, that's where it ends. Well, that's not where it ends. Verse 13, notice again, he says, there's grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Uh, Solomon's perspective is, this is what happens under the sun. In the the temporal world, where your wealth can be stolen or it can be eaten by moths, this is life under the sun. And if you live just for life under the sun, you will always be disappointed. Disappointed. Therefore, his conclusion is, fear God. Okay? Enjoy what God has given you in this life, but at the end of your days, fear God. Okay? And recognize that God has placed eternity in your hearts and there is something that you long for that lasts forever. So don't just live your life as if all that there is, is life under the sun. Wealth has wings. It evaporates, it flies away. Turn back to the Gospels with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Jesus says, don't treasure up foolish treasures because there never will be enough. There never will be enough. No matter how much you accumulate, it will never be enough. The definition of greed, the word literally means to have more. Greed is the longing to have more. There is never enough. I I want more and I want more and I want more. And Paul tells us that greed is by definition idolatry. Because I want something more, I'm fixing my attention upon it, and I believe that if I can just get more of it, it will satisfy me in the end. But there will never be enough. It cannot by its nature, because it is temporal and fleeting, satisfy the eternal longings of the soul. So don't set your heart upon it. Don't do it. A man named Frederick Catherwood wrote this. He said, greed is the logical result of the belief that there is no life after death. If this is all there is, then we will become greedy people. We will want more because we believe this is all that there is, so we've got to grab it all. And Jesus says, no, I want you to want more, but I want you to be enlightened in your self-interest. Because the more that I will provide you with lasts forever. Look back at the parable with me again, verse 16. It says, Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Do you think that the man would be satisfied? No. If this is how he has lived his entire life and he's always longing for more, and the more that he wants is temporal, not eternal, he will never be satisfied. He won't be able to kick back and say, let me now just enjoy. Because greed is the enemy of contentment. Can't be content as you're always longing for more. Uh, I read an illustration several years ago uh, about a study that was done, it was reported in U.S. News and World Report. They surveyed Americans and asked them, uh, how much money would be enough? If you could have a certain amount of money and say, now I'm satisfied, that's enough wealth, how much would it be? And it was interesting because it was kind of a sliding scale. For those who made about $25,000 a year, 50000 would be enough. For those who made about $100,000, 200000 would be enough. And what they discovered in the study was, for Americans, if they just had double, that would be enough. Just that much more. I remember one time when I was traveling down in Latin America, I was talking to a missionary and I, somehow we got into a conversation about materialism and I said, well, I guess you don't really have big struggles with materialism down here. I mean, everybody's so poor. And he said, "Oh no, no we have struggles with materialism. You know, where you are, it's two cars here, it's two donkeys. Okay, but it's still materialism. There's still this longing for more. And this belief that if I could just have more, then I would be satisfied. But it's a lie. John D. Rockefeller, when he was one of the wealthiest men in the world, he was asked, how much money is enough? You probably heard his response. He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Look at verse 20. This is what God said to the man, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God wants you to be rich. He just wants you to be rich in the right way and at the right time. He wants you to have wealth that endures. G.K. Chesterton wrote that there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less and less. This concept of contentment comes from a Greek idea of being self-sufficient, very similar to what we described in the concept of being blessed. Being in a, in a state where you recognize, I don't need or want anything more than what God has currently given me to have a full and rich and satisfying life. I am content. I want you to turn with me to the book of First Timothy, chapter 6, verse 9. Peter instructed Timothy, he said, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, Jesus would tell us to not store up Foolish treasures. Don't treasure up treasures that don't last because there's never enough of those. They're temporal. They can't fill the eternal longings of your soul. Don't store up foolish treasures because they will destroy you in the end. Listen to Paul's words again. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, literally some by reaching out for it and trying to take it, they have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul's concern, Jesus' concern, the Bible's concern is not with wealth itself. Wealth is not the problem. It's the love of wealth. God gives to people. Varying degrees of wealth. He gives wealth so that we can pay our bills, provide for our families, put covering over their heads, clothes on their bodies, food in their mouths. He gives wealth so that we can enjoy. We're going to see later on in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, he's given us all things richly to enjoy. He also has given us wealth so that we can share. Wealth is not the problem, it's the love of wealth. Because he says this love of wealth has caused some to actually wander away from the faith. How does that happen? What's the connection? Look down chapter 6 and verse 17. It says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. They fix their hope on something other than God. That's why the love of money pulls us away from faith. It causes our worship to be crushed. It causes our, our worship to wither. Because we become conceited if we've got a lot, we, we, we're proud that we can supply our own needs, not recognizing that God is the one who supplied our needs. We trust in wealth to provide us security and strength in this world. And so our hope is set on our wealth. Our hope is set on our own strength Our hope, then, is not set upon God, and we're not worshiping God. We're worshiping what our own hand can provide, and so it pulls us away from the faith. There's a strong correlation between worship and wealth, and I have discovered that in churches, we're often really hesitant to talk about money or to talk about wealth, which I think is a result of this long history of churches wanting more people to come So they'll give more money because we've got big buildings and big debt and big programs that we want to put on. And we want to be bigger and better, and so we need more of your money. And so churches go, we better not talk about money. You know, there's a reaction. Uh, Matter of fact, that's why a lot of people end up in Bible churches. I I call uh, you folks refugees You know, spiritual refugees, a lot of times you leave because you, well, I just, I got hammered with money all the time, so then Bible churches go, oh, better not talk about money. But you have to talk about money. Jesus talked a lot about money because it is so closely tied to worship, okay? It's an indicator of what our heart actually loves, so we need to talk about it, because if we love wealth, we will wander away from the faith. You cannot serve, you cannot be a slave to God and money. You cannot have God and money both be the highest priority in your life. The love of money also damages family. It damages family. Uh, Larry Burkett did a little bit of research several years ago. He's one of these uh, Christian financial gurus and what he discovered was among the the marriages that dissolve, about 50% of marriages fail in the United States. And within those marriages, the number one cause of marriages failing in our country is over issues of money by a factor of four to one over the next highest factor. It's money. It pulls families apart. I've counseled with many families who come in and uh, parents have passed away and now it's time for the distribution of inheritance, which means... Put on the gloves. <laughs> you know, the, the kids start to fight. Why? Because they have greed. They want more. To have more. I want more. I want you to have less. I want to have more. Okay? And it's take, 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 take. And they all hire lawyers. And they finally reach a resolution. And then no one speaks to each other again for the rest of their lives. Okay? They don't share Christmas together or Thanksgiving together because they hate each other. Why? Because of money. They would have been so much better off if their parents had fallen into the grave and spent the last dollar. It just pulls families apart. I've seen fathers who go out and they work 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 and they they tell themselves, I'm working because I want to provide what my family wants and what they need. And so they work these just ungodly hours and don't spend time with wife and children. And they get to the end of their lives and they don't realize, you know, what my children and my spouse really wanted was me. They wanted my time. They wanted my undivided attention. They wanted this strong sense that that they are more important than career that you value them more than career and money just tears family apart it it can destroy worship it can destroy our, our faith it can destroy families and so Jesus warns us he says the eternal longings of man cannot be fulfilled by temporal things therefore don't treasure up foolish treasures instead Let's get busy investing for eternity. How do we do that? How do we use our money wisely? I want you to look down with me again, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18. He says, instruct them to do good. Who's the them? Well, it's the wealthy, it's the rich. And uh, you say to yourself, well, I'm not rich. If you live in America, you are, you know, relatively speaking, maybe not as rich as the person sitting next to you on the pew, but relative to the whole rest of the world, you are wealthy. You really are. Um, you have two sets of clothes. <laughs> if you travel around the world, you'll discover that most people don't have two sets of clothes. Sometimes they might have two. It might be you know one for working, hard work, and then one when they go and want to do something fancy three sets, lots of shoes, their own vehicle to travel in, Uh, they just don't have it. Refrigeration, clean running water, we we really have a lot of resources. Uh, We don't think of ourselves that way, but we do. And this is what Paul says, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to hope, not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is really life, life indeed, so that they'll get it. This is what really matters. You may have heard that you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Okay? The currency of this earth cannot be packed up and taken to heaven but the currency of this earth can be exchanged for the currency of heaven and how do you do that well you invest your time and your energy and your money in things that last forever turn back with me to the gospel of luke chapter 12 verse 33 and jesus says sell your possessions and give to charity Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I do not think that Jesus is telling each and every one of you at this very moment to go out this afternoon and sell everything that you own and give it away. Um, You recall that even Jesus, as he traveled around and he did ministry, he was supported by people who had means. Particularly, there were several wealthy women who traveled with Jesus and they had family money and personal assets and they didn't sell all of their income-producing assets and give it away to the poor. They used it to meet their own family's needs and then also to contribute to the ministry of Jesus Christ and the disciples because they were taking the gospel throughout the nation and eventually all nations. They invested in things that last forever. That is, they invested in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ through which people have their sins removed forever and they experience eternal life. They made eternal investments. Okay? And we can do exactly the same thing. Jesus tells a parable about this a couple chapters later, chapter 16 of Luke, verse 1. 16.1, now Jesus was also saying to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you, given accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager? The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first how much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. The manager said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into their eternal dwellings. Jesus is not praising this guy's management techniques. He's not praising that managers, if you're a manager, that you should steal from your employer. He's illustrating the point that the world is shrewder than Christians. They think ahead. They plan ahead. I'm not going to always be in this current situation. And Jesus is exhorting his disciples do the same. The, the, what does he call it? Verse 9 here. The wealth of unrighteousness is earthly wealth. Okay, earthly wealth. And he calls it unrighteous because it doesn't endure. It doesn't last. But he says, don't invest just in that because it doesn't last. But you can take that and you can invest it in things that do last forever. That is, you can invest it in people. Because people endure forever. And when you generously give to the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world and to people growing in their faith so that they can not just become disciples but make disciples and you invest your time, which is so precious to you, and you invest your money, which is so precious to you, in things that last forever, then someday when you step into heaven, there will be people there who say thank you for sacrificing your time and your money so that I could be here today. Thank you that you sacrificed your own time and when you finished mowing your lawn, you came next door and you mowed my lawn. Thank you for inviting me over for dinner and feeding my family and and being concerned about our needs Thank you for loving us. Thank you for having the courage to share Jesus Christ with us, even when you knew that we might reject it and we might reject you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for sending your money to missionaries who go to places that you couldn't go so that they could share the gospel with people who've never heard the name of Jesus Christ before. Thank you, because you made that investment, I'm here. That is exchanging the currency of earth for the currency of heaven. That is making eternal investments that last forever and ever and ever. Nothing else lasts. People, okay? The truth of God's word, which is abiding and people. Last night, uh, actually yesterday, I, I drove to Houston for a, a funeral with my parents. And uh, as we were driving back, uh, my mom was asking me about the message and stuff. And she said, you know, you don't have to use this illustration, but if you want to, you can. So one time I was in a Bible study and a uh, Bible study leader said, Go home and take a sticky pad and put a piece of paper on everything that you own that you can't take with you, which is everything, right? It's pretty laborious, but great illustration, right? Can you imagine? Look at your whole house, and the whole thing's covered. What is it that you take with you, okay? Your character, the investments that you made in others. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. How do you do that? Well, I think that we need to begin with uh, essentially reorienting our perspective on stuff. Okay? I'll give you one illustration of this from Psalm chapter 50. God says, Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. He's talking specifically, making reference to the sacrificial system. What he's saying is, I don't really need you to bring me an animal to sacrifice, but you need to bring me an animal to sacrifice. I don't need it because I I made all the animals and I can make more. And I own all of the animals that are out there. You're just stewards of a few of them. I've just let you have a few of them for a period of time. And periodically, I need you to release one of those to me so that you remind yourself that you're not an owner, but you're a steward. This is in your best interest to worship me. Because it takes your mind off of earthly possessions. It releases your clutch on earthly possessions and your trust in these things to bring you satisfaction in life. That's why you need to do it. And it sets your attention upon me and my worth and my value. But I don't need these things. Okay? God owns everything and we need to step back periodically and look at our stuff and remember it's not our stuff. It's God's stuff. And he's given it to us as a stewardship to use in a variety of ways for our, for our own enjoyment but also to benefit the needs of others. Okay? That's where we need to start. We need to begin to reorient our minds as well that we don't worship our wealth but we worship with our wealth. How can we do that? Well, I would encourage you to start immediately. Okay? If you don't in any respect use your wealth as a part of your worship, then you need to start immediately. If you have nothing, okay? if, you're, you're, if you're like right now, there's, there's nothing in my budget extra, I still want to challenge you to give a little. Okay? Just give a little. Uh, remember the parable of the widow's might. She comes in and she drops just two copper coins. The rich guy comes in, drops lots of money in the, in the big brass receptacle. And so it goes, clang, 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 clang. Everybody looks in. They go, wow, he gave a lot. He gave so much. The disciples are tricked. Who gave more, Jesus says? Mm, it's the woman. She only gave a little. Why? Because she gave out of her heart. It was, it was from her heart, but also because it was sacrificial. Last week I was talking to a friend of mine, and, and he knew we were going to discuss money. And he said, well... Uh, could you address the issue of, of how, how do you do this when you're buried in debt? <laughs> well, um, first of all, let me encourage you to get unburied from debt. And we have courses that go on all the time to help you learn how to manage your money in such a way so that you have freedom. Okay? And we can, uh, if you don't know about when those courses are going or how to get involved, please come up and talk with me afterwards. But even when you're buried in debt, let me encourage you to start with just a little. Maybe it's a quarter each week. Maybe, uh, maybe you dig through your drawers and you find two or three quarters that you can give to your children as the plate passes. They get in that habit of just giving a little. Or maybe you skip a meal and you fast one meal during the week so you can put in two or three dollars or five dollars. It's just creating that habit, creating consistency because worship is to become a habit in our lives. Because it's transforming. And one of the ways that we worship is with our money. And for you parents, we need to get our children in that habit of just consistently giving. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 16. Remember, he says, set aside a little at the beginning of each week. Because when I come, I don't want to make the collection right when I'm there, right when I'm in front of you, because I don't want you to be tempted to be greedy. So I want you to just set it aside. That's God's. That's God's. Okay, set it aside a little bit at a time. How much? I don't know and I don't care how much you give. Right? That, that's, not, that's between you and the Lord. Entirely between you and the Lord. Church is not asking for your money. God will supply the needs for this church to function and operate. What we're talking about this morning is your heart and your worship. Now, if you want to give 10%, give 10%. If you want to give 11%, give 11 If you want to give 75 give 75 It's not the issue. Uh, you should remember though that in the Old Testament, 10 percent was what they gave as a base. And then they gave free will offerings and votive offerings and various love offerings and offerings to, you know this and that and other things, sin offerings. So they gave lots, and, and then every seven years, all debts were canceled. So if somebody who's another Jew, a brother, sister, part of the community owed you something? You had to give all that back. There was just this culture of generosity that God was trying to create. And that's what you notice is giving is another one of these things. It's a spiritual discipline like a muscle. The more that you do it, the more that you enjoy doing it. And the more that you enjoy being generous as you give. Let me have you look with me another passage here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Paul is writing to a group of believers who had lots of issues, moral issues, and worship issues, and they apparently had money issues as well, and he says, uh, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, and he brings up the churches in Macedonia as an example of what he wants, wants the church in Corinth to be like. Basically, he's trying to shame them and embarrass them because they're so stingy, but the churches in Macedonia are generous. Um, I wouldn't recommend that. You know, like its technique, always shaming and stuff. But that's what Paul does. So it's inspired, right? It says in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of, of participation in the support of the saints, and this not as we had expected. But they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Churches in Macedonia were poor churches, but they begged for the opportunity to participate because once they started giving, they found so much joy in giving and they learned to give generously. So start with a little and let God stretch you and teach you how to worship with your wealth. One other verse that I want you to look at, chapter 9, verse 6. 2 Corinthians he says and this this I say he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver which the word for cheerful is the word from which we get hilarious god loves a hilarious giver who just enjoys giving how much not relevant it's an issue of your heart Because it's an issue of worship and the more that we fix our attention upon God and upon his greatness and his goodness and his holiness, his power, that he knows all things and he can do all things, we ascribe worth to him. And the more that we see him as a generous God, we become generous people. Why do we want to become these people? Because God has been so generous to us. He gave us Jesus. God gives more. Right? God is not asking us to do anything beyond what he has done. He has given his most valuable possession, which is he gave his son, Jesus Christ. And the more that we gaze at God and we worship God, we become more like God. We will become more and more generous people because we worship a generous God. So as we go out this week and we we, uh, go back into a world that is uh, material and a world that is screaming at us. This is all that there is, just what you can see and smell and touch and taste. This is it. God wants to remind us that there are eternal realities that we should live for and we should invest in. These are the things that last forever, and this is living by wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us wise people. I pray, Lord, that we would learn uh, to worship you with everything that we have, with our mind, with our body, with our spirit, with our heart, with our time, with our talents, with the wealth that you have given us. I pray that you would become the preoccupation of our lives. I pray that we would learn to enjoy giving and sacrificing and serving others. And I pray, Father, that in that process that you would continue to transform us into your very image. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, amen. Have a great spring break and we will see you next week.